Please grab a Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts, chapter 16. You'll find it towards the end of your Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 925. Acts, chapter 16. And let me begin by reading our passage. I'm going to start in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Have you ever felt hopeless? Our feelings, of course, are not reliable guides, but we've all had moments, even seasons, where we've been unusually discouraged or distraught when it seems that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. It's interesting when we turn to the pages of Scripture how many individuals at one time or another struggled with hopelessness. So imagine being Adam right after he bit into the apple, but before he received that promise that one day a descendant of his would crush the serpent's head. Right? Literally, the sin of the world was on his shoulders, hopeless. But what about Ruth, mourning the loss of her husband in home with, with only Naomi to cling to? What about, what about Peter staring up at the cross and seeing Jesus so bravely facing death and yet recognizing the way he had in such a cowardly fashion denied his Savior three times? I mean, talk about Talk about hopeless. So I, I thought about these examples and so many other examples in the Bible. We could have talked about David when Saul was after him. We could have talked about Jeremiah, the, the, the weeping prophet. We could have talked about Ezekiel who lost his wife and example after example after example. And I thought about these examples as I read our passage. And I thought about the plight of that first century slave girl. Now, we don't know her name. Uh, we know she's young. Uh, we know that she's a, a, a commodity. She doesn't have one owner. She has owners. She's like a company traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And even worse, we know she's demon-possessed. Did she, did she ever, in those days, weeks, years of demon possession, did she ever have a, a moment's rest? Was she ever conscious of her predicament? She seems hopeless at the beginning of our passage, Paul and Silas seem hopeless at the end of our passage. Have you ever felt hopeless? 
Whether or not you can relate, and I think we all can, there is always hope in the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, why else have we come? There is always hope in the name of Jesus Christ. We are convinced of that. We're committed to that reality. And that's the simple point that I want to leave with you over the course of the next few minutes that we have together. There is always hope in the name of Jesus Christ. We are in the book of Acts. We are accompanying Paul on his second missionary journey. Uh, he had been traveling around a modern-day Turkey looking for a place to, to preach when the Spirit sent him to Macedonia, which is in modern-day Europe. It's about A.D. 50. Paul traveled from Neapolis to Philippi. He's in Philippi now where he has already preached to a small group of women. God saved Lydia, the businesswoman we met in verse 14. And now the Lord turns his gaze upon a slave girl. Again, name unknown. But her life changes when Paul comes to town. And this morning, I want to basically summarize our passage with four points, just to give you a summary, a walkthrough with four points. And here's the first point, the first scene, if you will, a demonic encounter, a demonic encounter. So look again at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, once again, Paul and his companions are heading off to the place of prayer. I assume this was back to the riverside where God has saved Lydia. And it looks like Paul is fishing for some more converts from that makeshift synagogue. But on the way, someone hooks him. And she's a slave girl, Luke says, who had a spirit of divination. Now, the Greek text literally reads, she had the spirit of a python. I know, really strange. Apparently, in Greek mythology, a python guarded the temple at Delphi, and the god Apollo killed that python. And from then on, whomever predicted the future was thought to be a servant of Apollo with the spirit of the python that he killed. It's all very strange, but that's what she was doing. Now, what isn't strange is the fact slavery was very common throughout the Roman Empire. Some historians suggest that slaves comprised nearly one-third of the residents of major cities like Rome and Philippi. Most slaves worked alongside their masters in the home or in the workplace, tilling the soil, making clothes, forging iron. But this slave girl works on her own. She's a fortune teller. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but I have this driving along Roswell Road. Every once in a while, I come across a building which appears to have a fortune teller inside. So scoff all you want. It appears that Atlantans today are giving their hard-earned money to someone who could perhaps see into their future. This was her demonic trade. 
Seemingly out of nowhere, she approaches Paul yelling, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So up until now, Paul's evangelism had all been private, right? At the riverside, uh, among converts to Judaism. But he knows this is a demonic attack. And at first, he seems willing to ignore it and let it pass. But she continues. Now, her confrontation of Paul is very similar to the conflict we see throughout Jesus' ministry. So, for example, in Luke chapter 4, we read of Jesus being in the synagogue in Capernaum when out of nowhere a man cries out, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, I could spend the next hour or two or three or four walking you through various encounters with the demonic world that Jesus had during his earthly ministry. There are many, dare I say, they are legion. Growing up uh, in Oregon after heavy rain in the backyard, uh, I would see earthworms come to the surface. I don't know if this is, I haven't noticed that in Atlanta. I don't know if we have more worms in Oregon than Atlanta. I don't know. I just remember you would go out and you would see tons of, of, of earthworms uh, escaping the water. The water brought them out into the open. I think Jesus is like that water. As his mercy and grace flooded the earth during his earthly ministry and even after his earthly ministry, as the apostles were flooding the earth, so to speak, with his gospel message, it appears that the devil and his workers were, were forced into the open, sort of on, on high alert, looking for some way to cause the Son of God incarnate or the message of the Son of God incarnate to, to stumble, to slow Jesus down. And that's what we see in, in Acts, what we see in the Gospels, it's what we see really throughout the Bible. Of course, the reality of the spiritual world is difficult for many scientifically-minded Americans to accept. It is certainly the clear teaching of Scripture. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, Paul, who himself had experienced the demonic, we have seen it before, we're seeing it today, we'll see it again. It's Paul who wrote, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, Satan isn't the only source of, of evil. There is wickedness in your own heart as well. But Satan is real and he is personal. He wants to keep people from hearing the gospel. And he wants those who have accepted the gospel to turn away from that gospel and fall away from Christ. Satan is hard at work fighting against Jesus and his church, against his people. I don't bring this up to, to scare you. If you're a Christian, you should not be scared. The Spirit of God is in you, and he is a trillion times more powerful than evil spirits that are outside of you. 
But I must be honest about what the Bible teaches. When, whenever the gospel is preached, Satan is unhappy. And he will do what he can to defeat this good news. Well, how should you think about Satan and his work? Well, first, you should be assured because, and encouraged because Satan has been defeated. Hebrews 2.14 says, Jesus has destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So that's encouraging, right? Whatever the devil is doing, he has, in the most fundamental sense, been destroyed, been conquered. Jesus wins. Jesus is going to win. One day everyone will know that. That encourages me. But also you should be warned because Satan, though destroyed, is not powerless. 1 Peter 5 8, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And at this moment in human history, a Satan wanted to devour Paul. All right, this takes us to verse 18 and our second summary statement a stern rebuke, a stern rebuke. Look there at verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour, that very moment even. Well, the slave girl's mocking went on for several days. Uh, Paul let her go on. I'm not sure why Paul let her go on. Perhaps Paul thought that she would eventually give up or give up sooner than later. Uh, maybe Paul knew what would happen if he started engaging with this evil spirit. And maybe Paul honestly was busy. I mean, he could have been engaged in evangelistic conversations at the riverside that he didn't want to cut short right now. I don't know, but he did not engage her immediately, but he eventually did, finally turning his attention to this possessed slave girl. He finally decided to do something. Now, when I read in the text that Paul was greatly annoyed, it sounds a little strange to me, like he was maybe a little thin-skinned or inconvenienced, like here's this poor slave girl, and Paul's finally like greatly annoyed, and so he does something about it. Well, I don't think that's it. More, more likely, Paul is, is greatly bothered. He is bothered, bothered because she is confusing people. And by this point, she has been confusing people for, for days. And here's what I mean. On the face of it, what this slave girl is, is crying out is true, right? They are servants of the Most High God. They are proclaiming the way of, of salvation, but remember, it's, it seems that Paul's ministry up to this point in Philippi has been fairly private among converts to Judaism, outside the gate, by the riverside. So I don't know that anyone would have really known much about the true gospel that he was preaching and Silas was preaching. So here is this slave girl possessed by a demon, and she's just yelling out, you know, servants of the God most high, proclaimers of the way of salvation. And no one would have really understood what she was saying because when they heard the word God, they were not thinking Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, creator and redeemer. When they heard salvation, they weren't thinking, oh, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved from my sin. No, they would have had other ideas about God and salvation, probably more in line with 
Zeus or perhaps the Roman emperor being God and physical safety being salvation. One historian, not, not a Christian, uh, explained the, the, these first century views of God and salvation in the Roman Empire this way. He said, in the days of Augustus, that's the Roman emperor, and his successors, the people were taught to expect salvation. That is the dispensation of justice, protection, peace, and prosperity from the emperor. The practical significance of this view is that the government should be regarded with religious awe and its officers as such are divine. In other words, when, when they heard that possessed slave girl screaming out about the God Most High, no one would have been thinking about Jesus Christ. She was bringing confusion. And finally, Paul, being bothered by that, he brings clarity. He says to her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul brings clarity. He brings the name of God into the equation. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. Right? Salvation comes in the name of Jesus Christ, where the demon is speaking in generic or general terms about God and salvation that have really no worth because no one understands what they are. What does Paul do? He loudly and boldly brings up the name of Christ. We must be clear about the gospel. If there's something to take out of the precision with which Paul addressed that demon, if there's something to bring out of the fact that that demon was so imprecise, it's this. We must be clear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The biggest threat to evangelical Christianity today is not a world that attacks the gospel. I recognize that is on many of our hearts and our minds. We wonder when it will be more difficult perhaps to be a Christian in America, to profess faith in Christ in America. But the biggest danger facing evangelical Christianity is not attacks to the gospel from outside the church, but a church that assumes the gospel. The biggest problem is not out there, but it's in here. Satan's plan has always been to distract image bearers from God's truth. Right? That's, how, that's how the devil works, and he will do it any way he can. Right? If, he can if he can raise up a crowd to be hostile to Paul with this generic message of, oh, servants of the God Most High, if he can confuse the crowd about the message of salvation, he will do that. If he can twist the truth so that we believe just enough of it, but not enough to save us, he will do that, right? The slave girl preached a half-truth, and he does the same thing today. Maybe not as, maybe not as dramatically, but certainly as powerfully. Satan is very pleased wherever pastors and churches Stop talking about the gospel. Satan is very pleased when churches begin equating the gospel to a path to greater money, greater success, a better life. 
Now, I recognize I'm speaking by God's grace to a congregation in love with the gospel, but I would love our, our, our hearts to mourn for so many of our Atlantan neighbors who are attending health and wealth gospel preaching churches, which is no gospel. We need to recognize that Satan is attacking the Bible Belt by allowing the prosperity of prosperity gospel preachers. This is Satan's plan to distract image bearers from the true gospel, which does not promise earthly success or material prosperity, but it promises something far better, the knowledge of Christ and eternal life with him. This is a satanic attack. And it's not just in prosperity gospel churches. Again, bad name, no gospel there. But it's in even churches that bear the name evangelical, but assume the gospel of Jesus Christ and replace the, the good news with how to be a better dad or a, a better mom or a better giver or a better employee. Good things to say, but half-truths if they're not under the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, when we speak with others about the gospel, let's be explicit. Let's not contribute to the problem. Don't speak in generalities when you're talking about the Lord. Don't simply affirm there is a God thinking that they probably know what you mean. Right? Don't simply tell people to put their faith in God, trust the Lord, assuming you know what they'll know what you mean. No, proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Tell them what they've done. Tell them what Christ has done. Because until they understand that they have sinned against a, a holy God who made them, they'll never see their need for him. And until they understand that Jesus died on a cross in the place of all those who have turned and trusted in him, well, they'll never understand the cost of their forgiveness. Be explicit about the gospel. Michael, you come this morning to be baptized. Remember why you're here. And not just like today, such a public day for you, but really every day. Right? Your sin separated you from God. You deserve God's wrath and everlasting judgment. But God in his kindness saw fit to bring the, the explicit gospel to you, not a general gospel about a God, but the explicit gospel about Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, who died on a cross for sinners like you. That's the gospel that you're about to testify to in just a few minutes. Never forget that gospel, brother. Always be clear about that gospel. And that takes us to verse 19. And our third summary statement, a wicked accusation. A wicked accusation. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. All right, so 
When Paul exercised the demon, the girl's owners acted quickly, decisively, violently. They apprehend Paul and Silas. They drag them to the marketplace in Philippi. The marketplace was, uh, don't think like Pont City Market. Uh, it, was, it was Pont City Market, but it was also the courthouse, a very general place where, where business was done. Official business took place. And did you notice, this is a little bit of an aside, but did you notice that they only seized Paul and Silas? Do you remember who else was with them in this little band of missionaries? There was Timothy. We know there was Timothy. And, and now we know that, that Luke was with them. But Timothy and Luke appear to remain untouched. It was not very confusing to figure out why, right? Paul and Silas were the leaders, uh, and everyone knew that. Leaders get a lot of credit when things go well, but good leaders, they go down with the ship. They take responsibility when things go poorly, whether they deserve it or not. This is why Paul and Silas are singled out the punishment that the Romans are about to execute. Leaders, even today, need our prayers because praise of leaders can lead to pride, because conflict with leaders can lead to discouragement. So pray for those who lead you, whether it's pastoral leadership. Pray for, for leadership in, in your home. You know, kids, if they're kids, I see you. Pray for your parents who are leading you, that they would not be proud, that they would not be discouraged in their own leadership of you. Now, many of you have Christian employers. Uh, pray for them, that they would not be made proud by the opportunities that God has given them or discouraged by the conflict that God's given them. And if your employers aren't Christians, well, pray for them too, that God would open their hearts and help them know something of the love of Christ. In any event, in verse 20, we see there the, the accu accusation, that wicked accusation thrown against them. Verse 20, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, hogwash. What that accusation is implying just isn't true. The, the problem, at least early on in, in Paul's ministry in Philippi, the problem was not his Christianity. Right? They, they were seen as Jewish, and the Romans had long carved out religious liberty or at least religious toleration for the Jewish people. The problem, they say, is that they disturbed the city. Well, I recognize that the slave girl brought in a fair amount of money, but saving one slave girl hardly is disturbing the city. So what happened? Well, Paul admittedly cut off a valuable stream of income for those owners. Remember, it's not just owner, it's owners. She was a commodity. She was a, a publicly traded company. And in their accusation, oh, what are they doing? They're disturbing the peace. They're thrusting their customs on us. In that accusation, it was really just a, they're just hiding their greed. That's what they care about. And they pretend to care about the public good. 
Now Luke makes that very clear in verses 18 and 19. In verse 18, Luke writes about how the evil spirit came out of her, came out that very hour. And then in verse 19, and this is not really obvious in the English, it says their hope of gain was gone. Their hope of gain was gone. In the Greek, it says their hope of gain came out. All right, so verse 18, the spirit came out. Verse 19, their hope of gain came out. Do you see the connection that Luke is making? Right? The spirit goes, and so does their 401k. The two were tied together. They cared about the money. She was nothing more than a commodity to them. They used her and were willing to make wicked accusations about them because Paul and Silas stole their retirement. This, by the way, is the opposite of how we are to treat people. Right? Just think about the way they, they used that girl. This is the opposite of how we as Christians are to treat people in our lives. It is easy for us to treat people like cogs in a machine, right? like, uh, like parts in the factory of our own self-worth. Right? We act as if people are interchangeable parts. We, we just want friends. We don't care particularly who the friend is. We just want affirmation. We don't mind particularly where it comes from. We just want it. The gospel tells us not to do this. The gospel calls us to love. It tells us to appreciate people, not for, for merely what they can give us, but for who they are. Individuals made in the image of God, inherently valuable, uh, priceless even. And think about how that applies to the church. You're sitting next to not merely people made in the image of God, but people born again into a living faith. How priceless are your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not merely to want friends or affirmation. We're to love specific people and to receive them as great gifts from God in our lives. Let's not forget that. Now, by the way, so what happened to that slave girl? Luke only tells us that the spirit came out of her. However, now let me just, uh, hmm, I don't know if sanctified imagination is the right word. I think there's a, a reason for us to actually conclude that having had the demon taken out of her, this slave girl actually became a Christian. Now let me tell you why I think that's the true. It's interesting that Luke tells her story after the story of Lydia's salvation. We saw that last week. And right before, and a spoiler alert, right before the story of the jailer's conversion. So it sure looks like what Paul, what Luke is doing is chronicling three salvations that took place during Paul's missionary trip to Philippi. Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. As we saw last week, Paul came to a leading city, but he didn't come to the leaders, at least not at first. So it seems safe to conclude that Paul shared the gospel with this young girl, tormented, unloved, alone, and without hope in the world. 
How would this have happened? Well, again, look at verse 18. Paul says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. The Spirit obeyed Paul. And Paul could very easily have pointed her to Christ. Right then and there, Paul could have told her the good news that, in fact, God had made her and that God sees her. Can you imagine how sweet it would have been for her to hear from the lips of the Apostle Paul that God sees you? That God wants her to obey him. Now listen to this. Don't you think it's likely that Paul also said, dear girl, your biggest problem, your biggest problem has never been that demon that possessed your mind, but your own sin that possessed your heart? Think Paul could have said that to her? And then Paul could have told her about God's love and about his plan for Jesus to die, to wash away our sin on that Roman cross in Jerusalem. So surely she felt hopeless, but Paul could have told her that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save kings and farmers and, and queens and even slave girls. And I wouldn't be surprised. Again, I am making this up. But I certainly wouldn't be surprised if Lydia scooped up that little girl and brought her, bought her from her owners. Do you know, centuries later, as there was still slavery within the Roman Empire, when Augustine pastored a local church uh, in North Africa, that uh, members of that church would, would ransom people out of slavery, purchasing their freedom. So it certainly seems possible to me that Lydia, seeing this this, this little church grow, could have scooped up that little girl, bought her from her owners, maybe even taking her into that big house of hers and showing her some Christian hospitality. Yes, all of this is conjecture. I can't be sure, but I know that if you're a Christian, this is what God did for you. I know if you're a Christian, you don't need to be hopeless ever again. And if you aren't a Christian... I want you to know that that same power that was at work in Paul's command to that demon to get out of her, that same power is at work in God's Word. So I would dare not command you to repent and believe the good news of the gospel, but standing upon the Word of God, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, I urge you, to turn to Christ, to follow him, to identify him as God the Son incarnate, to recognize that your only hope is his atoning death on that cross, to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, proving himself to be God to the world, and to follow him forever and ever. And if you're here this morning and you want to do that, you just want to know more about that, I'll be standing at the door after this service, and I would love to talk to you about the good news that saved that slave girl. God can save you. God can change you. And that takes us to our fourth and final point. Verse 22, a painful imprisonment. A painful imprisonment. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. It's interesting that Luke tells us the crowd joined in attacking them. Remarkable. Right? The owners of the slave girl must have convinced the people that Paul and Silas were bad for business. And I'm thinking about what, what would get that crowd so incited that they would join with these small business owners and attack Paul and Silas. Maybe the crowd thought that whatever was going on would lead their own slaves to revolt against their masters. Either way, the crowd thought that Paul and Silas were bad for business. And so there's a reason Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In Philippi, they were serving money. This is clear. It's also clear that there's nothing wrong with being, being wealthy. But if Christianity does not change how you view your wealth, it hasn't changed you. If Christianity, if the gospel hasn't changed how you view wealth, it has not changed you. Whatever you've adopted as the gospel is not the gospel if it has not changed your view of wealth. I know a, a man uh, who was once the former CEO of a major American company. He's still alive. He lives in another state. And the gospel got a hold of him later in life. And this man always had uh, a lot of money. Uh, he had even more money when he became a CEO. When he retired, the money kept coming in. Right? He remained wealthy. But when the gospel got a hold of his life, it began to change how he viewed his wealth and how he spent his wealth. Like, so for him, and this is sort of strange to me, but, but he downsized. And that meant selling off homes he owned around the world and limiting himself to one large house in New Jersey and a very nice but modest condominium in Manhattan. And then he had another problem. He had a lot of people who worked for him. Right? A lot of people who helped with the cooking, a lot of people who helped with the driving, and they, they depended upon him for an income as a, as, a, as a man who was really having his life turned upside down by the gospel. He didn't know what to do, but he thought, well, the best thing to do is just employ them as faithfully as he, as he can to provide for them so that they can provide for his family. Even though as a Christian, he wasn't feeling quite the need for as much help as he had had. And now he spends basically all of his retirement creating resources to train pastors around the world, using his wealth to encourage individuals to create resources that might be an unusual blessing to pastors in particular. It's a, it's a, it's a fun example, not really accessible for many of us, but one example of a man who remained wealthy, but his view of everything he had changed when the gospel changed him. Brothers and sisters, look carefully at the way the slave girl had been trapped by the greed of her owners. Look at the greed that put Paul and Silas behind bars. Beware of the lure of money. 
If you work simply for money, you will never have enough, and you're always going to be afraid of losing it. But if you really work for the Lord, as Dane taught us last Sunday evening, you will be thankful when the money comes. You'll know how to spend it, and you won't rely on it for a sense of worth or validation. Now, if everything I'm saying to you sounds like, Aaron, that sounds really nice, but I'm just trying to make ends meet. You know, I'm just trying to put food on the table for my family. I'm struggling with how to piece together the gospel and, and money. Well, I want to encourage you to come on Wednesday nights. Brad mentioned that we're about to begin a couple new classes, and one of them is a short series on financial stewardship. It's going to be taught by Rick Hutchins and Dan Ulett, and they're going to walk through some, some basic gospel-centered principles to how we view and use our wealth. There'll be lots of time for you to ask very practical questions about what this means for you. I'm sure that Rick and Dane would be happy to spend hours after that class is over just talking to you in particular, right, guys? Right, well, maybe, maybe not exactly that, but it will certainly be, be worth your time. Back to verse 22. The magistrates, they... They strip Paul and Barnabas, we, excuse me, Paul and Silas. We don't know if they were stripped entirely naked. It wasn't uncommon in the Roman world to, to basically do exactly that, just to humiliate someone for the sake of making a point. Maybe they were just bare-chested, but they were stripped to some degree. They were beaten. The text says they were beaten by rods. They were imprisoned. Apparently, they were imprisoned safely, which I don't think means like safe for the ones imprisoned. I think it means safe from someone releasing them, safe from someone, you know, freeing them. So they were brought into like the, the darkest inside of the prison. And as if that wasn't enough, they were put in stocks, which means they were very uncomfortable. Just sitting in stocks would have been torture. The name of Jesus set the slave girl free. The name of Jesus landed Paul and Silas in a painful prison. A few years later, uh, Paul recounted the suffering that he endured as an apostle. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul chronicles his experience being beaten for the sake of Christ. He describes many imprisonments. He, being, he describes being, being uh, uh, whipped or lashed five times. He describes being beaten with rods three times, and this moment here is one of those three times. He describes often being near death. Now, uh, I wonder, could Paul and Silas have gotten out of it? I mean, could they have done anything to sort of keep this from happening? I mean, perhaps if they renounced their, their faith, if they said, you know, no, no, we... We want to honor the emperor. We want to do anything we can to help the emperor. And perhaps they could, have, they could have said something or done something to have been released from the prison or perhaps not to be beaten in the first place. It appears they had a moment in the marketplace where they could have tried to negotiate their release. None of that appears to happen. Right? What appears to happen is these folks counted the reproaches of Christ better than physical safety. They were happier being identified with Jesus in his suffering than to do anything to see them 
unduly released from prison. I can only expect that Paul took the words of Jesus to heart, Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Paul and Silas, they were willing to lose their lives, and that's clear. What about you? My goal isn't to make you feel bad because you're not suffering the way Paul and Silas suffered for their faith. I don't want you to feel like something's wrong with you because you're not in stocks. I simply want you to reflect for a moment on on why Paul and Silas were willing to suffer and not think about them for a moment as these folks that you can't relate to who lived in this strange world where people did great things for God. Why would two men be willing to suffer the way Paul and Silas were so clearly willing to suffer? Why'd you think for a moment just about the ugliness of these two own, of these owners? I don't know how many there were that we've been talking about this morning. These owners willing to abuse a girl and send two righteous men to jail to satisfy their greed. And compare that attitude to what you know of Jesus Christ. Those owners, they destroyed others for the sake of themselves. What did Jesus do? He destroyed himself for the sake of others. Think of it this way. It doesn't get more hopeless, does it, than being a slave girl whose owners now probably want you dead? And it doesn't get much more hopeless than being placed, verse 24, in the inner prison with your feet in stocks? Our passage reeks from beginning to end with with what seems hopeless. But Paul and Silas knew something amazing. This slave girl through her exorcism and through the gospel, which I believe was preached to her, learned something amazing. And here's what I trust she learned. That Jesus subjected himself to the most hopeless situation imaginable. Jesus subjected himself to the most hopeless situation anyone in the course of human history ever faced, complete separation from God the Father on purpose, according to his will, sharing in the will of the Father, right? Never was there a darker night than that night when Jesus hung on the cross. It doesn't get anything, it doesn't get any darker than that. The pain that Jesus experienced was not merely physical, right? It wasn't merely emotional. Jesus was severed, right? God the Son incarnate was severed from his Father. It doesn't get any more hopeless than that. That is the picture presented of the passion in the Bible, right? Never was there a more hopeless moment than when Jesus felt the full wrath of God on himself. Remember, I talked at the beginning of the sermon about what it would have been like for Adam, right? In between that moment where he bit the apple and then before that, like, good word, that that, that sharing of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, 
where Adam is told that a descendant from Eve will crush the serpent's head. Like, that's great news. Like, God, I'm all about that now. But there were a few moments in between, weren't there? When, when Adam knew, Adam knew that this was his fault, right? In that sense, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, the weight of the world's sin literally on Adam's shoulders. But God still talked to him, and God still clothed him. When Jesus hung on that cross and bore the full weight of the wrath of God, there was no talking with his father. I do not know what it is like for the infinite to be punished. I don't know. But there is nothing more hopeless, nothing darker than that. But Jesus endured. Jesus became dead so that we could be alive. Jesus became hopeless so that slave girls and apostles and prophets and normal folks like us could be hopeful. And if this is true, and it is true, then your only hope is in the name of Jesus Christ. You have no other hope than that. And if he is your hope, if, if Jesus is your hope, what trials can overwhelm you? Whether it's losing a job or losing a friend or losing your pride, right? You can never lose more than Jesus did. He was lower than the slave girl. He was lower than the apostle in stocks. No one gets more hopeless than Jesus. And yet in him, we too have conquered death. There is hope in the name of Jesus Christ. So, Michael, as you come to be baptized this morning, remember who your hope is. Not your wife, not your kids, but Jesus Christ. You too will carry your cross and follow him. The Christian life is not a bed of roses, but Jesus is worth it. He's your only hope and he's our only hope. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we recognize that you are at work in amazing ways in our lives today, unclenching our fists from the things of this world and placing them carefully on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, wherever we are during the week, whatever we are doing in the week, we ask you to help us seek refuge in him, the one who is our only hope. Encourage us in our faith. Remind us of the powerful work of the cross of Christ. Help us see ourselves as sinners saved as clearly and as surely as that slave girl in AD 50 in Philippi. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.